Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to see you as we continue uh, through uh, celebrating Advent, the anticipating of the birth of our Savior Jesus. Uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. I invite you to turn there. Uh, and let me pray and ask God to uh, continue to be with us as we worship him through the reading of the scriptures this morning. Uh, Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your greatness. God, thank you that you are holy and there is none like you. And God, I thank you that uh, as we pause for a few minutes to open your scriptures together, Lord, I thank you um, that you speak through your word. God, that you have inspired the scripture to be written down, that you have preserved it for generations for our benefit today, and that by your Holy Spirit you will give us understanding in our minds and have the gospel applied to our hearts to transform us. God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we celebrate uh, his birth during this season of Advent, and God, as we wait in anticipation for his return uh, Lord, I pray that this time uh, in between would be a time of um, stirring us up to become more like your son, Jesus. And God, that you would convict our hearts of sin and brokenness. And Lord, that we would lean on you as our good and loving father and that we would lean on Christ as our true savior and rescuer and, and that we would yield to your Holy Spirit as the one who changes us and shapes us. And so, God, we give you this time. Pray that you speak clearly through your word to us. In Christ's good name, amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. For no one takes this honor for himself, but only when, God, when only called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Friends, we are imperfect people living in a temporal world. But Jesus is our perfect and eternal high priest. And this good news changes everything for us. Have you ever worked hard on something only to have it turn out to be imperfect and fall apart? I mean, think about something that you've worked on. I mean, maybe you poured your heart and soul into something. Maybe it was something like a really big deal, like you were like constructing something, like building on, adding on to your house. Or it could be something a little smaller, like maybe you were working all day on a craft or something, 
And you work very hard. You pour your heart and soul into it. You devote all this time and all your skill and the best of your ability. And it turns out a little imperfect. Has that ever happened to anyone or is it just me? Right? I mean, maybe it's an art project you were working on. Maybe it was a song you were trying to write or record. Maybe it was a, a something you were doing for school. Maybe you were writing a paper. Right? I think of a Christmas story. Right? You know what I'm talking about? A Red Rider BB gun, Ralphie. You remember the scene where he is contemplating this remarkable essay in his mind? The essay that would change the classroom and his life forever. The reason why he wanted to have a Red Rider BB gun. Do you remember? You should rent the movie if you don't own it. It's Christmas, people. Right? Ralphie sits down and writes out this great essay and, and goes up to the teacher expecting to get an A plus, 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 right? And what happens? The teacher says, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. He's totally defeated, right? Sometimes it could be something like that. Sometimes it could be like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Hmm? You know what I'm talking about? This, work with me, people, come on. Leaning Tower of Pisa was built. The foundation was not secure. As the tower got a little higher and higher, it's tilting. If you look at the picture today, they've corrected the foundation a little bit, but it still tilts. I read somewhere it's like 12 feet off of where it should be. Or you think about Clark Griswold on Christmas vacation stringing up lights on his house. You know the scene where I'm talking about? He spends all day and all evening like stringing up lights all over his house. He brings his family out and has drum rolls, plugs it in, and nothing happens. Anticlimactic. That, for many, is the story of their lives. It's the way I feel when I try to do something like that. You know, something handy. I'm just not a handy person. And the great musician and poet, said Jimi Hendrix, said this. Castles made of sand fall to the sea eventually. And you and I are imperfect people living in a temporal world where we feel like everything we do will eventually break down at some point. We can pour our heart and soul into a craft, but at the end of the day, it's not the perfect craft that we had hoped. We can pour our heart and soul into an essay only to have it shot down by the teacher we submitted to. We can pour our heart and soul into some building constructing construction only to see that it's maybe a little flawed at the foundation. Or we string lights up on our house and we plug them in in front of our family only to be mocked and laughed at because the lights didn't come on the way we thought. All right, this happens because we are imperfect And the world we live in is temporal. The castles that are made of sand will fall to the sea eventually. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in spite of the brokenness of our temporal world, Jesus is perfect and he is eternal. And that's good news for us that changes everything. Where Jimi Hendrix says castles fall to the sea eventually, Jesus in Revelation says, Behold, I am making all things new. And that's what we celebrate at Advent, the coming of our Savior and King Jesus, who is eternal, who is perfect, and who is coming to set all things right, to make all things new. The writer of Hebrews lays it out for us this way, understanding that Jesus is our great King. He is also our eternal and perfect high priest. And this is good news for you and I. We talked about this some last week, and uh, we will continue to talk about the theme of Jesus being our great high priest, that, that he comes to do for us eternally and perfectly what no personal uh, human alone priest could do, and that is to give the ultimate atonement and sacrifice for our sins, ushering us into the presence of God once and for all. And this week, in chapter 5, 
the writer of Hebrews, makes clear that although we are imperfect people in a temporal world, Jesus is our perfect and eternal high priest. Therefore, we have an eternal salvation fueled by kingdom obedience. So look at me first with the fact that we are imperfect people in a temporal world, in need of rescue, in need of salvation, in need of help. The first couple of verses say this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the author of Hebrews in the first couple of verses here is kind of uh, continuing to frame our context with this uh, understanding of of the the priest in uh, first century Judaism. Right. Uh, we talked about this last week. Somehow there were there were um, priests that would go to the temple and offer sacrifices. There was a high priest who uh, with the um, the blood of atonement and the day of atonement once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies into the temple to offer sacrifice uh, for the year for the sins of the people for for himself. He would do that first and then would walk in to the temple to offer uh, blood of a sacrificial animal for the atonement of the sins of the people. And year after year, he would do this on behalf of God's people. But that priest, for generations, uh, the priests were, were just human guys. They were imperfect. Scripture even tells us here that they were chosen from among men. They were just guys, right? From among men, they were appointed to act on behalf of men, right? So a group of imperfect people said, here's an imperfect guy that is going to be appointed by us to walk in and to uh, make right this relationship with God. This imperfect priest would uh, uh, offer sacrifice to atone for his own sins, but also would walk in uh, to do so on behalf of the people. Verse 2 says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So you have an imperfect man acting on behalf of other imperfect people, on behalf uh, of a relationship with God. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And so here we see being a Christian in the first century, in the context of uh, first century Judaism, you would be familiar with a priest doing this for your village, for your family, uh, for all of uh, the Jews of the day, having a high priest walking uh, to the temple to offer sacrifice for himself and for others. And this is just telling of the brokenness that all humans experience. Right, we have cosmic brokenness that comes from, we see in the book of Genesis, the uh, first man and woman rebel against God, and because of that, all of creation comes unraveled. We have cosmic brokenness that is uh, indicative of sickness, death, imperfections in nature. Those things were not the original way it was meant to be. We have civil brokenness. We have uh, Political corruption, religious corruption, we have uh, wars between ethnicities, we have personal brokenness, personal sin, personal relational tension. And so for generations, God's people have been yearning to be rescued, yearning to be saved, yearning to be made right with God and each other. And so for generations, we've seen imperfect priests act on behalf of imperfect people to approach a perfect God to offer atonement. And this would happen year after year 
after year. Because the priests are always imperfect. The people are always imperfect. All people are always in need of rescue. And God, in his perfection, would forgive their sin. And year after year, the people would plead before him. And so for you and I today, we often forget the work of Christ. We often think, well, I'm imperfect, and I want to approach a perfect God. And we often try to make up for our own imperfections, do we not? Sometimes we try to uh, be overly spiritual or religious. Sometimes we try to be overly moral or good. Sometimes we try to do good things, and those things are good, but often it's fueled by motivations that forget the gospel. Often we do good things not because we love Christ. We do good things because we feel guilty or obligated or ashamed of our past, or maybe we feel prideful in whatever tradition we find comfort and operate in. And so the writer of Hebrews addresses this, addressing the first century Judaism of the day. And for you and I, we can put it in the context of the ways we, as imperfect people, try to approach a perfect God apart from Christ. Think of the ways that you do it. Let's just be honest. Think in your head, search your heart. What are some ways and what are the motivations, moreover, of why you do the things you do to try to get right with God? Because even the good things we do that are temporal, coming from imperfect people, may not be fueled with gospel motivations and kingdom purposes. Maybe you try to make things right by doing better, trying harder, performing in such a way that you think God will approve of you and accept you and forgive you. When I was in college, I often would do this. In my years of rebellion, I would go out and have fun with my friends and the next day feel really, really guilty and go to like seven different churches and read like 10 different versions of the Bible and spend like the whole day trying to make up for the weekend before. None of you have ever done that, ever, have you? But we do. We do. We say, man, you know what? I shouldn't have watched that movie. Let me go compensate for it by watching Courageous or something else. But here's the good news, because I want us to be honest about not only what we do, but the motivations behind what we do. I want us to see, just as Scripture indicates, that we are imperfect people, even to the point of our motivations for good things being imperfect. Like we can do good things, but those good things are often fueled by imperfect motivations. And you know what? It's a good place to be. Because here's why. As Scripture makes clear that we are imperfect people living in a temporal world who are doing good things fueled by imperfect motivations, even with temporal outcomes, I mean, even if you build the best perfect-looking building, it will crumble eventually. That sets us up to be rescued by a perfect priest. Verse 1, verses 1 through 3 make clear that for generations, imperfect people 
have been sending imperfect priests into the presence of a perfect God. But look what happens in verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, we are imperfect people in a temporal world needing to be rescued. But the good news is that Jesus is our perfect and eternal high priest. Whereas we're imperfect, Jesus is perfect. Whereas we operate in a temporal world, Jesus is approaching us from his eternal kingdom as an eternal king. See, look what scripture says here. It sets up the scene for us to see imperfect priests acting on behalf of imperfect people approaching a perfect God. But then Jesus Christ is not the imperfect priest but rather is our perfect priest. He is not a temporal priest. He is an eternal priest. And the author here quotes um, the book of Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. He says that he is perfect and eternal, a begotten son. You see that in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Jesus' identity is different, whereas other priests in generations past would be appointed by the people. They're just other imperfect people that would be set aside to act on behalf of the people. Jesus has a different identity. He is the begotten son of God. Quoting Psalm 2 with the expectation that God would indeed send his son. The writer of Hebrews also quotes Psalm 110. In verse 6, today you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a household name, right? I know all of you have goldfish named Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek is an interesting figure in the Bible. He first appears to us in Genesis 14. We don't know much about him. But if you read the story of Abraham, you know there's a a scene in Genesis 14 where uh, Abraham meets Melchizedek who is described as priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, just affirms the promises of God to Abraham. But there's a lot more to it than just this chance encounter. You see, Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of who Christ is, because Abraham is a foreshadowing of who God's people are. If you know the story of Abraham, he was going to be the father of many, right? That God promised to him that he would have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that would fill the earth more than the sands on the shore, more than the stars in the sky, and that through the lineage of Abraham, all the world would be blessed. It's foreshadowing God's people, and moreover, it's foreshadowing Christ coming. Melchizedek in this scene in Genesis 14 is not just acting as this random priest to come bless some random guy, but rather is foreshadowing who Christ is and what he will do for all of God's people. Where Melchizedek was a man blessing Abraham, Christ comes in as a perfect priest to bless all of the people that are in uh, God's family. See, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Scripture tells us Melchizedek was from Salem, which means peace. 
See, Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, and again in Psalm 110, the psalmist in Psalm 110 is prophesying that a priest would one day come fulfilling perfectly what Melchizedek did for Abraham. And we see that is fulfilled in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, but Jesus blesses us. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, but Jesus is our true king and our true righteousness. Melchizedek was from Salem, which means peace, but Jesus is our true peace who leads us into an eternal peace forever with him. Melchizedek is a very important character after all, because he points us to Christ. So you see, here we are, imperfect people, living in a temporal world. And Jesus is our perfect and eternal priest coming to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to lead us to true peace and to true righteousness as our true and better high priest. So what does this mean for us? We're imperfect people in a temporal world. Jesus is our true and better priest because he is eternal and perfect. Therefore, we have an eternal salvation with kingdom obedience. Look what scripture says here in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. You see, Christ obeyed through suffering so that we could obey out of suffering. Jesus' work is perfect. When Scripture says his work is, is perfect, it not only means it's without flaw or flawless, but it means it's complete. And the word perfect means it's, it's complete, whereas we live in an imperfect world because we're imperfect people. We have to continually work at stuff because we will never complete things, right? I mean, you'll never completely have your garden just being awesome because the day will come, we got to till the soil again or prune the shrub, right? Like you'll never be able to have your house perfect because your kid will write on the one wall that's not a chalkboard wall, right? We have chalkboard walls in our house. Everything should be chalkboard wall. And then they find a Sharpie marker and it just does absolutely no good. Suburban dad problems, y'all. But see, Jesus' work is perfect, meaning it's not only not without flaw, but it's perfect, meaning it's complete. Whereas priests year after year would enter the presence of God to offer atonement for the sins of the people, Jesus once and for all completed the atoning sacrifice for God's people. Once and for all. This means that you and I have an eternal Salvation that plays out through kingdom-fueled obedience here and now. Are you with me? Jesus' work is complete. Jesus is perfect. He is eternal, and his work on your behalf is complete. Let's pause there for a moment. Like I said earlier, we often do good things fueled by non-gospeled motivations. We often do good things fueled by guilt, by pride, by fear, by shame. Likewise, we often doubt that Jesus 
has done the complete work on our behalf, don't we? How many times do you feel like you have to supplement Christ's work for you? I mean, how many times do you think, you know, I know Jesus died for my sins, but he didn't know what this weekend was going to be like. I know Jesus died for my sins, but you know what? He'll be really impressed if I do this thing. Right? I mean, I know Jesus has forgiven me and accepted me, but I need to do X, Y, and Z to make myself look all the more religious for him. Or, you know, I know Jesus says love your neighbor, but I would rather not do that because I don't want to love that one guy because I can go on the other side of town and serve hundreds more and it just looks better. Right? Hmm? Am I the only one this speaks to? Often we do good things with bad motivations. And that's not a good thing. We often are motivated by guilt, by shame, by pride, by fear. And likewise, we doubt Christ's completed work on our behalf. And we feel like we need to supplement with something. We feel like we need to say, well, you know, I know Jesus died for my sins, but also this. And we, in many ways, try to offer penance by taxing our brains with guilt and fear and shame and by taxing our bodies to try to perform and make ourselves look better and try harder. But the good news is that Jesus is our perfect and eternal priest and his work is perfect, meaning complete and without flaw. And as a perfect priest, he steps into an imperfect world. With a completed work, he rescues people that are in a temporal and faulty, broken world. And scripture says, because of Christ's work, we have salvation that is described by obedience. Salvation and obedience I want us to think about right now. Because often we'll do one without the other. Often we'll say, well, I'm going to obey all of these rules of Scripture while neglecting the fact that Christ has completed salvation for you. And therefore we think that the the things we do out of obedience are really earning our salvation. That's not biblical. Does anybody ever get there? We say, I want to obey, 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 obey because I want God to save me. Well, you know what? His work has saved you. You are saved. Now obey. Or often we'll do the other side. Well, so I'm saved, so I don't have to obey anything that Scripture says. I'm saved by grace, man. Pass the joint. <gasps> I'm saved by grace. I can look at this on the Internet if I want. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to love my neighbor. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to lead my family. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to be generous with my time or my resources. I'm saved by grace. I don't have to associate with you other Christians. Anybody feel like that ever? See, there are two things described here. The effects of Christ being our perfect priest, securing for us an eternal perfect work. It describes it by being uh, our salvation and obedience. Do you see that in verse 9? Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We see here that the work of Christ is described for us, giving us both salvation and obedience. You can't have one without the other. If you were obeying, 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 trying to earn your salvation, you miss Jesus. And if you were saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, forget obedience, you miss Jesus. I would venture to say, if you think you were saved and you don't obey the instruction of Scripture, I don't think you're a Christian. 
And I think if you were obeying Scripture, thinking you're going to earn God's salvation, you were the best religious person I know, but I don't think you get the gospel. The best gift I can give to you on Christmas is this, is that Jesus is our perfect high priest, and his work on your behalf is complete. He is a good God, and he loves you. He is a good God, and he is saving you despite your imperfections. He's not mad at you. He's not mocking your attempts to earn your salvation. I don't think he is. I don't think he is angry at you because of your disobedience, because you you think grace is just a license to sin. Rather, rather, I think Jesus sets foot into our broken world while retaining his perfectness, his unbrokenness, his eternal godness, he sets foot in our broken world with all of our flaws, with all of our silly motivations and silly attempts to be awesome without Jesus. And he walks into the room with such grace and such patience and such kindness. You need proof? Start at Genesis 1. And read all the way to Revelation. Time and time again, you will see God's people doing great things with ill motivations. And God saying, it's by grace that you're my people. Or you'll see God's people doing foolish things, just stupid stuff. I look at the Bible, I'm like, that guy's an idiot. And I'm like, wait a second. I probably would have done the same thing. Because the point is that all through the Bible, there's not all these great heroes that you're supposed to be like, but rather there's a bunch of broken people that God shows so much grace to. And you and I are among those people. Because even the best things we do are broken. Even the best things we do are fueled by broken motivations, whether it be guilt or shame or pride or fear. Now, I don't want you to walk away feeling spanked. I don't want you to walk away feeling annoyed. I don't want you to walk away feeling irritated or sad or anything else. What I want us to do is just see very honestly who we are and how we are. I'll use a Christmas illustration. Did any of you ever sneak around your house around Christmas time and try to peek to find the presents that your parents were giving you? Any of you? Or maybe if you're, parent, if you're here and you have children, maybe that happened to you. I mean, maybe, maybe around Christmas time, you know, your parents have stashed the gifts they bought for you in their closet. So when they're not looking, you sneak over to their closet, try to, try to peek behind the curtain. Or maybe <laughs> I did this in fourth grade. Like I totally like unwrapped the present and then tried to wrap it back just didn't work. You know, my mom came home from work. She's like, Jeremy. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, you looked at that present. I was like, say again. She's like, a present in the corner. What corner? The present behind my bed. What bed? What are you talking about, mom? Oh. The tape doesn't stick back in the same place. So the gift was all like, you know. And here's what I'm getting with that. I have children now. And my children are on to that little scheme thinking it's like, you know, They're new to it. They're like, they'll never think of this. Let's go look for the presents, right? Their attempts to be sneaky, their attempts to try to sneak around behind my back to see the good thing, to just try to figure it out, you know, covertly, it doesn't make me angry. 
doesn't make me angry. I don't shame my kids. I don't make them feel guilty. I don't make them feel afraid. Like, if you go in there again, you don't eat for a week. Hey, if you find that Christmas present, I'm going to set it on fire in the backyard. You know, I don't, you don't, as a parent, you don't do, as a parent, you don't do those things. We're not getting a puppy, so don't fear the worst, right? (laughs) Dad, what are you doing? I don't know. I told you. In the same way, It's a crude illustration, but in the same way, God is a loving father who has this huge gift for you of the gospel. And your attempts to try to sneak around and figure it out, your attempts to try to deceive the Lord, I don't think God is going to burn you to the ground. Because the evidence throughout Scripture is that God is so gracious, He's kind. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And any punishment for your sneakiness has been poured upon Jesus. And what does Scripture say? His work is complete. It's perfect. You don't have to pay penance out of guilt and fear. You don't have to make up for the sins of your past. You don't have to fear that the Lord's going to catch you sneaking around to find your Christmas present and then punish you so harshly for it. Because Scripture tells us here, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Now, priests throughout generations did that. Jesus' perfect priesthood and his eternal completed work on your behalf means he can completely deal with your waywardness. No matter how wayward you are, he can completely deal with your ignorance, no matter how ignorant you act. That's what that means. So, your salvation is secure. Salvation in Scripture means deliverance. It means rescue. Picture the story of Exodus. God's people are in bondage and oppression for generations, and God comes down and sets them free. They didn't do anything to set themselves free. They didn't do anything. God did all kind of crazy stuff. Why? Because he's a good God. He loves his people. If you know the story, is God sets them free. He rescues them. He gives them salvation, rescue, Freedom, deliverance, they're leaving Egypt, and right away people start complaining about food. We're free! I'm hungry. I don't like this food. We should go back to Egypt. What? What? Did you just see what God did for you? Did you see that ocean part? That was amazing. Yeah, but I'm hungry. What though? What happens next? You read the book of Exodus, guys, people complain, they doubt, they distrust, they start worshiping idols. And what does God do? He continues to lead them to freedom. He continues to give them food and water. He continues to lead them to a land of promise. Are there consequences? Yeah. But he still leads them, and he still cares for them. And then he still gives them the law, including the Ten Commandments. Important point here, just for you to take away. God gave the law for them to obey after he set them free. 
You with me? God gave them salvation and then said, obey. Hmm? Very important point. God didn't say, do the Ten Commandments, and then maybe I'll give you your freedom. Nope. He says, I'm going to set you free, you wayward, ignorant people. I'm going to give you salvation and deliverance and show you my grace and kindness. Also, here's some great instruction from me to you that I want you to live by. Because you are my people, because you were saved, because you were free, because you have my deliverance. And so this is what we see here in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, our eternal, complete, perfect priest, his identity is the perfect, begotten son of God, not chosen by man, but chosen by God to act on our behalf, dealing with the ignorant and wayward, not every year, but once and for all, offering atonement for the forgiveness of sin, for the forgiveness of our faulty, imperfect motivations to do once and for all what we can't do for ourselves. Scripture says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. You have freedom in Christ. You have deliverance in Christ. You have rescue in Christ. Therefore, obey. Scripture says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now it's hard because you can read that and say, so that means you have to obey in order to have tap into that source of salvation, but that's not really how it reads. If you break down the New Testament Greek linguistically, obedience is evidence of the salvation. It's a response to that salvation. Actually, the word to obey really means to open the door. That's what the word means. It means to open the door. To open the door to salvation. Right To open the door to give evidence to rescue. To open the door to give evidence to deliverance and freedom. I mean, Christ has done the work for you that you cannot do for yourself. Therefore, being saved, being rescued, being delivered, we open the door to show. It's like having a, just a closet slap full of like balloons. That's probably terrifying for some. I don't know. Think cotton candy. What's something that you like? Do you have a closet in your house that's slap full of like random stuff you don't even know you own? Like open it and it pours out? That's the image I'm trying to get here. Think of your closet being slap full of balloons or cotton candy or just whatever you just love. You're just like, I love the one item on the planet that you can, just for a second, don't be idolatrous, but the best material thing in the world you can think of, fill a closet with that in your brain. This is not working, but just do it. And then imagine opening a door and it just like comes pouring out. Right, just gumballs, just, oh, man, this is great. Yeah. That's what we see here. To obey means to open the door. It's like you have this slap full closet full of salvation, deliverance, freedom, grace. You didn't pack the closet. Jesus did. But you obediently open the door is what obedience means. Out of obedience, you open the door and the junk just pours on you. So don't think of nails or something like bricks, but think of something like candy, you know, just whatever. Forget it, just whatever, just obey the Lord. But you're with me, right? Obey really means to open the door. It just means like being flooded down with the 
grace that Jesus gives you through giving you salvation, deliverance, rescue, freedom. Obedience gives evidence to that faith. Obedience is an active, ongoing action of constantly opening the door, tapping into that salvation, tapping into that freedom, tapping into that deliverance. Here's what I'm getting at, friends. Jesus' work for you is complete and it's eternal. Your salvation is secure, but there is ongoing evidence of that that plays out in your obedience to him. That means that we ongoingly do good things, not because you're trying to earn God's approval, but because you have God's approval. You do good things not to try to impress God so that he will accept you, but because he accepts you. You try to do good things not to make up for sins of the past, but you know that Jesus has dealt with the sins of the past. Therefore, you are going to obey and you're going to do great things to just show off how good Jesus is for you. Right? There's this ongoing open the door. And this plays out in big cosmic things like who should I marry? What church should I go to? What city should I move to? What, what kind of job should I pursue? When you think about these huge, big, life-changing events, pray hard. Trust Jesus and open the door and let him just flood that goodness onto you. But also in your day-to-day interactions as well. What movie should I watch? What book should I read? What website should I go to or not go to? I have some extra money. Where should I spend it? I have a little bit of extra time. How should I invest it? I have a coworker who is just wanting to talk to me all the time, how should I invest in that conversation? What kind of relationships are you navigating? Are you opening the door in obedience of that salvation and letting that ripple out and ooze out through your relationships, through your spheres of influence, through your work, through your school, through your neighborhoods, through your homes, in your marriages, in your families? Because, friends, obedience is huge, big, cosmic yanking of the big door. But it's also the little openings of the doors cracking a little bit, too, every day, little by little, piece by piece. And all of this comes in the framework that we are imperfect people living in a temporal world who are in desperate need of rescue. But the good news is that Jesus is our perfect and eternal high priest giving us perfect and eternal salvation that will play out in our obedience, even if it's imperfect. And that's okay. So what I have for you is this, a couple things to think about in our time of response. Friends, I want you to know more than anything the good news of Christ's perfect and eternal person, his perfect and eternal work, His perfect and eternal love for you. You need to know that. You can't walk out of this room thinking, Jesus is so great and I'm a piece of trash. You can't walk out of this room thinking, His standard's here, that means I need to do X, Y, and Z to get there. Nor do you need to hear, Jesus is here and I'm... I'm a guest here, and all these other people are probably pretty high, but I'm way over here. Mm-mm. We're all down here, all of us. <laughs> Me, I'm at the, just right at the center saying, we're at the bottom. But look at Jesus. That's my job. So what I want us to do, a couple things to reflect on during the time of response. First off, think about 
what you do and the motivations behind them of the things you do. I mean, maybe you got bad things going on. You're like, that's easy. That's motivated by sin and selfishness. But also think about the other things that are motivated by guilt or shame or pride or fear. Just think about those things. Secondly, and this goes for you if you are not a Christian or if you've been a Christian longer than I've been alive. Trust Christ. Repent and believe. Trust is faith. It's an ongoing relational trust. It's not just a one-time doctrinal idea, but it is an ongoing relational trust. I am asking us to ongoingly trust Jesus as our eternal and perfect high priest. And I want us to repent which means to turn away from something and to look towards something else. I want us to turn from sin, turn from guilt, turn from shame, turn from pride, turn from fear, and turn to Jesus ongoingly, constantly. Just, we got to look to Jesus. Just, we have to. He is eternal. He is perfect. He loves us. So, confess our sin, our guilt, our shame, our doubt, our pride, our fear, Turn to Jesus, believe, trust, and obey. Open the door of that salvation, letting his grace flow into every avenue of our life. Exposing the dirty parts, but healing us from our wounds. Because that's the good news. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. And I thank you for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you that Jesus indeed is our true and perfect great high priest. That he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That he lived a perfect life that we cannot live. That he died a death as our substitute, our atonement, our once for all sacrifice so that we don't have to supplement with penance and ongoing sacrifices to try to impress you, God, because your holy, begotten, chosen son did that for us. And God, I thank you that out of his grace and mercy, he, he pours onto us freedom and deliverance and salvation and rescue, rescue from sin and its effects, rescue from brokenness and perfections, the, the temporal hardship of this world, where we look forward to the day where we experience your greatness and perfectness and eternity. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would constantly turn our faces to you, that you would constantly turn our minds' attention to you, our hearts' affection to you. May we turn from sin, from guilt, from shame, from doubts, from fear, from pride. God, that your Holy Spirit would convict us to run from those things and run to you, Jesus, trusting your perfect and complete eternal work for us, the salvation you provide for your people, because you're good, even though we're not, because you're perfect, even though we're imperfect, because you are eternal, even though we are temporal. And God, you are really good to us. I pray that you do amazing things in our midst, in our lives, personally, our marriages, our families, our friendships, our communities, our jobs, our schools, our neighborhoods, in this church called Redemption, in this city called Augusta, and out to the nations. Lord, I ask, I beg that you would do amazing gospel things by your spirit, by your word, for your glory, for our joy, and that the good news of Jesus would advance to all the nations, to every man, woman, and child, we beg. In Christ's name, amen.